You know, I love the, the blessing of uh, this church uh, building that we have, that we get to meet in each week. But I don't need to tell you all, do I, that this, this thing around us is not the church. Actually, all the people sitting here is. And I know we often refer to it as the church. I'm heading up to the church or whatever. Uh, we do that because it's an easy way to describe the building we're, me- we're meeting in. But this really is a house of worship. That's, that's really probably the best description if we were to follow the biblical description of, of what this place is that we're meeting in today. Although it's a big house, isn't it? Church in the New Testament is defined as the people who gather in Jesus' name to worship him pray together, to grow in our faith, and we combine our efforts together to bring the gospel to the world, the good news of Jesus. Now, I know that's nothing new to most of you, but we are the church. And Jesus has a deep and wide love for the church. So that's us. Jesus loves us. He loves this gathering of followers here this morning. He actually wants the best for us. And he believes in us. He believes in us because he's our king and he's given us a task to do. Now, how do I know all these things? Because the last thing that Jesus prays on the night before he goes to the cross is for the church. Just think about that. That's the last thing he prays for before he heads to the cross. It's for the church. That's you and me. You know, last week we read the first eight verses of John 17 uh, in the history or the, in the timeline of, of the Passion Week. It's, it's the Thursday night before Good Friday. And in that, those first eight uh, verses, it, it was revealed the heart of Jesus was to bring glory to God by completing the task God had given him to do. That was last week's sermon. If you weren't here, you can catch up on that online if you want to. But this week we rejoined that final prayer of Jesus from verse 9 onwards. And we're going to read all the way through to the end. So I'm going to do a little bit of reading here. It's going to be on the screen behind me. You can follow along. Here we go. John 17, verses 9 to 26. My prayer is not for the world. So just remember, this is Jesus. He's praying. My prayer is not for the world. Not, not in this particular prayer anyway, but for those you have given me. He's talking to his Father. Because they belong to you. Verse 10. All who are mine belong to you. And you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except for the one headed for destruction as the scriptures foretold. Verse 13. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with joy, with my joy, actually. I have given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. 
They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. 22. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can all, they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. There's a lot in that, isn't there? There's a lot of stuff perhaps repeated a little, or explained a slightly different way for us to understand what's at the heart of, of, of Jesus here. So here's my... Uh, Second point out of this two-part series I'm preaching, the heart of Jesus is for perfect unity in the church. And so much more, by the way, if you were to forensically go through or exegetically go through that passage, you'll find a lot more points. But here's what I want you to know today, today is that the, perfect, uh, sorry, the heart of Jesus is for perfect unity in his church. All the way back in verse 9, Jesus said this specific prayer is not for the world, and we know he loves the people in, all the people in the world, so don't get this wrong here. This prayer was for, not for the world, but for those the Father had given him. And that's not just those disciples who were there with him at that time. It's for the church. Now, I know this because you would have noticed in verse 20, hopefully, that Jesus clearly says he's not just praying for those disciples that were there that day. He said... It was for all who would believe. So that's you and me. Jesus prayed this prayer 2,000 years ago. He had you and me on his mind. Isn't that amazing? These words that we just read are being spoken down through those ages and they are still as powerful now as they were then. So we should pay attention. And this is what he wanted more than anything for us, to be united to him, to Jesus, and each other, in the same way that Jesus was united to his Father, and that was a perfect unity. That's a high standard for church unity. I'm sure you read it all there. Let me just quickly recap. Verse 11, protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. Verse 21, I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one. And may they be in us, verse 22, so that they 
may be one as we are one. 23, may they experience such perfect unity. 24, I want these whom you have given me to be with me. And 25, your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. It's all mixed in together. We're unified to Jesus and the Father and to each other. We're connected. And you know, Jesus uses this word perfect sometimes in scriptures. Have you ever noticed that? Perfect unity. And we think, he didn't really mean perfect. He meant you should try to be perfect. Well, he didn't say that. In fact, he said, you should be perfect as I am perfect in another part of scripture. And here again, he's saying perfect unity. We should think about this. How does that happen? How does that happen? This is a glimpse into the heart of Jesus that is revealed in this prayer. And his heart is for us to experience something together. In fact, he actually uses the word experience. I don't know if you saw that there. That we would experience Unity together. That is not an acknowledgement. An experience is like rolling a roller coaster ride, right? We experience something. It's like when you go on a cruise ship. That's an experience. You come back. How was it? Well, it was an experience. Hopefully in a good way. Hey. It's a unity that is so good that it looks the same as the unity that the Father and the Son has. And we experience it. <laughs> In other words, there's a perfect unity to, to be had. It's not just to Jesus. It's to each other. So let me ask you, how good has the church been at unity, at being in one? with Jesus and with each other. I don't just mean us, although that's good to reflect on as well. I mean universally. How close has the church through history, including today, been at this perfect unity that Jesus talks about? So consider, it's 32,000 plus denominations in this world. And a good portion, I would say maybe a majority of those denominations or movements, you know, people say, I'm not part of a denomination, I've started an independent church, I'll say, that's good, you've just started a denomination. Well done. But a good portion of those have sprung up because one or more people decided to go and do their own thing. Often it's because God called them to do something, and that's awesome, we celebrate that. But often it's because of disagreement. You know, one or more points of theology, perhaps, or because of offense that's been caused, or clash of personalities, or poor leadership, poor vision, you know, sin in the church, a crisis has happened, complacency has set in, Maybe there's been a direct spiritual attack. You name it, it's caused the church to divide and divide and divide and divide over and over and over again. Does that sound like the perfect unity that Jesus prays for? And it doesn't, quite frankly. And yet Jesus, who knew, he knew that all of this was going to happen, okay? He, but despite the fact that he knew, he still prays for a united church. And I think it's because he knows how powerful a united, a united church is. And he knows how ineffective a disunited church is. Ununited, disunited, which one's better? Dis, disunited. In other words, he desperately wants this church, the church worldwide, 
to succeed. Jesus knew that only a united church can change the world for God. Only a united church will reveal Jesus to the world in the way that he wants. A church that is completely united with Jesus and each other is a sign and wonder to the world. He said, not once but twice, that our unity will point people to Jesus, by the way. First in 21b, he says, And may they be in us so that the world will believe. You sent me. That means our connection to God is so important and so powerful that the world will believe in Jesus and who he said he was by our connection to God. A church that is so united to God, that loves God with all their heart, their soul, their mind and strength, which is what Jesus said we should do, that's how we should love him. That church points people to Jesus. We're seeing it in his words right here. That was his heart. It was in his prayer. The second one was in verse 23b. May they experience such perfect unity. So now I think he's more referring to each other. That the world will know that you sent me. And that you love them as much as you love me. You know, this verse should really shake us a little. Because A, in that verse Jesus told us that God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. I hope you didn't miss that. I hope that's kind of glaring off the screen at you right now. And you know what, if you've never experienced that love, you've got my permission to hear nothing else today but that one. You can stop right there and start praying and think about that. God loves you as much as he loves his son. Can you believe that? Well, I can. <laughs> because that's what the scripture says. And B, if the church fails at unity, the world may not see and hear that same message of love. And wouldn't that be a tragedy of our doing, of our making? We can tell the world until we're blue in the face that God loves them, but if the church can't even find love for each other, then there's no power in those words. They're just cheap words. We could have the biggest church, the best music, the nicest buildings, even, even great teaching and preaching, but if there's division, maybe gossip, maybe lack of love for each other, and those we're trying to reach will just think, well, that's hypocrisy. There's no power in what you're saying. There's no truth in what you're saying. What's the point of the church? You know, why would I have anything to do with that or with them? Now, thankfully, church, don't worry if you're sitting here thinking, I wonder why you're saying this today. Is something going on? No. I don't see those things here. But trust me on this. Those bad things can appear. Oh, they didn't work very good. Like that. And unity can be lost. The click of a finger. I should have warmed up. But here's my point. We should be vigilant, okay? Because it can feel like everything's going well and that there's a healthy church happening here and we're all united and we have a, a purpose together and something can happen. And it can be lost like that. Let's be honest. Disunity tells the world... We don't really believe what we preach. It undermines the power of the gospel of love. Now earlier, 
in this Passion Week. So just thinking in the week of the Passion, even though we're at uh, Palm Sunday now, I'm preaching on the Thursday, okay, after Palm Sunday. So zoom back a few days. Jesus had said a similar message in chapter 13. Actually, it wasn't a few days, but it was very close. Verse 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So the way we actually love each other is proof of Jesus being our Lord and we being his disciples. If we don't have that, there's no proof to the world. It proves it. If we can't find a way to love each other, people won't see us as real followers. And maybe the gospel message, you know, we, we may do damage to it in that sense. A church that loves each other like Jesus loves the church is a unified church. And I had a big section on 1 Corinthians 13 here, which I removed this morning because of time. But you know, it's, it's a love chapter that you often hear at weddings and things like that. But it's a, it's a word to the church about how we should love each other. And you can be awesome at all these things. You may even be filled with spiritual gifts and stuff like that. But if you can't love, as far as God's concerned, those things don't mean anything. Now, they are great and they are meaningful, but without love, they don't mean anything. That's the key for the church. Let me just tell you a few things about what a united church is. I've already mentioned the first one. It's a sign and wonder to the world. It goes against the divided nature of our culture. You know, I feel like the world is so divided these days. Maybe we're not at war like we used to be, but it's, um, everyone's just yelling at each other all the time, right? Especially when you turn on the TV or read the newspaper. Left wing, right wing, different uh, nationalities, LNP, ALP, country, city, public school, private school, male and female, you know, the poor, the wealthy, whatever it is, there's just always this division everywhere. And those divisions actually don't or shouldn't exist in the church. People of different ethnic backgrounds can not only sit side by side, but love each other like brothers and sisters. Yeah, even if you've got a different political view, by the way. I bet if I was to survey the church, there's an election coming up, some of you are going to say, I'm voting this way, and some of you are going to vote this way. Guess what? That's okay. You can sit beside each other in this church and love each other and be brothers and sisters. And, you know, we've got, we should demonstrate this to the world because this is the one that really gets me. I can't stand the division that comes from politics. <laughs> the church should show something different in this area. Western culture, it's kind of fractured in this way. Wisdom and maturity seems to be lost. Uh, the media loves to exacerbate it and make it worse. But in the church, we can disagree and still gladly be at each other's place for lunch that same day. The church... A united church is powerful and effective because we unite behind the cause of God and focus on him and his mission instead of us. It's not actually so much about what we want, is it? It's about what God wants. And when we unite behind God and his mission, it's powerful and effective. God has the chance to do what he wants to do or what he wants us to do because we're not busy with internal things. We're busy focusing on him and what he wants. It's a powerful church. It's more focused. It gets more results. Want to see a church that's getting results for the kingdom? They're going to be united. 
A united church is a healthy church. All the parts are in good working order. The main thing is the main thing. Emotional maturity is on the rise. Disciples grow deeper. Leaders are raised up. All the parts of the body work like they should with Jesus at the head. A united church is a place of support. It holds each other up when one of us stumbles. It's like... uh, All right, Mark and... um, I need to pick on someone. Greg, come up here for a second. I need to do a demo, I think. I didn't tell these guys I was going to do that. You know, a united church, usually, yeah, usually it requires us, you can face out that way, to stand close. So now you've got to come in closer. Yeah, and, and then we kind of, you, you link arms a little bit, right? And the closer you are, the tighter that linkage is. But what happens if someone stumbles a little bit and they start to fall? These two guys here are holding me up, and that's what a united church does. But what happens when we separate a little bit, and they're out there, all of a sudden, I can get down, and I can fall. But often what happens in the church is that we're standing off like this a little bit, and we're standing off like this a little bit. And and if you're an introverted person, you're like, well, that's how I like it. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a way to be introverted and, and, and still be close and know what's going on in each other's life. Thanks, guys, you can sit down. This is the way it's supposed to work. And I know sometimes that it can be hard to do. It can be hard, uh, especially as a church grows and, and maybe there's new people coming along. We don't know each other very well. We don't know each other's background very well. We've got busy lives. I don't have a lot of time to invest in others. I understand that. But we need to be united together and know each other. And we need to be willing to tell each other when we're stumbling as well so that we can make sure that those linkages are really tight. They're not loose. When we're part of a church, we stand, and if we stand away, we'll have no support. The next one is a united church is a taste of heaven. If Christ has won the victory over sin and death and the Holy Spirit dwells within the church and grace and love abounds, then we have this little glimpse of heaven here that people should really be able to experience. It's an experience, actually. And the last thing is, a united church is hated by Satan. He doesn't like it. A divided church, on the other hand, is inward-focused. It becomes all about us, our desires. You know, when that happens, grasping for power sometimes starts to crop up, maybe squabbling, people can take sides, we can take our eyes from Jesus, and the people he asked us to reach, we take our eyes off that. We focus on all the wrong things. We start to look like the house of parliament instead of the house of God. Is that true? A divided church is ineffective for the gospel. It turns people away from, from the, the good news of Jesus. A divided church is disobedient to God, actually. I don't really need to say much more on that one. A divided church is no support when we stumble, which I've just covered. And a divided church is loved by Satan. He loves it. And and I think that when a church struggles in these ways, and we all know we've seen it happen, 
when a church struggles, falls apart, closes, whatever happens. Here's why Satan's happy. He doesn't have to do anything. He, he can have a holiday almost. You guys are doing a great job messing that up. I'll go focus over here. What destroys the church is a whole bunch of things, actually. The first one is poor conflict resolution. You know, when we, we don't deal with difficulties that inevitably happen, inevitably. So I hope you're not hearing that United Church is something where there's never any disagreement or conflict, because I've never seen that place yet. Although we're, we're a glimpse of it. But when we don't do good conflict resolution or we sweep bad behavior under the carpet, then, that, then it destroys unity. Also, lack of Christian submission destroys unity. I'm not talking about submission to leadership, or that might be part of it. I'm talking about the need that we all seem to have to, to have the last say or to, to be right, to get things our way. The need to be in control. Sometimes it's a need for power. And most importantly, we just want to be right. Submission, of course, is always a two-way street. And in a church, it's like a, a big highway of it. That doesn't make sense. It's a big web. Christian submission doesn't work if only some of the people are submitting their need to be right to others. Or should I say their need to be selfish? In a church community, Christian submission is across the board. It includes pastors and people in leadership and everybody else. We give up this need to always be right. The other destroyer is the, um, the trap of being offended, of taking offense. Let me tell you, this is one of Satan's biggest weapons to divide a church and distract it from all the things it's supposed to be doing. You know, when something goes wrong in the church, or maybe you were hurt by something, usually it's unintentional. I feel like Satan walks up beside you and he whispers in your ear, you should be offended at that. And the problem is that that feeling of offense of self-righteousness that comes from that, it's dangerous. And sometimes it can be addictive to be offended. It's a feeling that comes inside and it does something like most other addictive behaviors in our life that we start longing for again. It's dangerous because we let our feelings take over and we don't respond in, a, in an emotionally healthy way. Offense not only brings disunity to churches, it distracts churches from their mission. And the saddest part is that people can get trapped in this life of offense. And when you get to that place, then there's always a risk, isn't there, of bitterness. And you don't want to be in a place of bitterness. Bitterness is bondage. We want to be free from that. We need to be extra careful when we feel offended because offense can be Satan's tool of division in the church. And in my experience, it can be bigger than just our usual disagreements and differences that we would always have. 
because disagreement is actually not disunity. It becomes disunity, I find, when people take offense, or if we take offense. I'm talking to myself as well, don't worry. And we have to insist on being right. We can't let go and do Christian submission. When we can't surrender our need to be right, disunity begins and we, you know, that, that tight coupling that we had starts to loosen. So I want us all here to be careful of Satan's trap of offence, but at the same time, let's never think Satan has victory over the church because Jesus promised he wouldn't. In Matthew 16, he says, he's talking to Peter, I say to you, Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. As a promise for us to hold on to when things maybe do start to go wrong. The church will survive. The church will survive. And you know what? If the powers of hell won't conquer it, the church can be the opposite and be the gateway to heaven instead. And the church is us. We are the gates of heaven. Jesus is the entry into heaven, but he actually gives us the job of pointing people to him. What enhances unity? Well, it's the opposite of what I just said. Submission to God and each other and to authority, being willing to not take ourselves so seriously. You know, sometimes we just got to laugh at ourselves, okay? <laughs> we just got to let things go. Good accountability and governance is important. Staying true to biblical truth. Being willing to accept the consensus, so long as it's biblical, of course. Not holding positions of leadership or power too tightly and graciously addressing conflict and bad behaviour. These are the sorts of things that enhance unity, but I'll tell you what enhances unity more than anything, and that's us submitting ourselves to Jesus and the Holy Spirit's work in our life together. There's nothing more unifying than worshipping God together, than praying to God together, than reading the word together and growing in our faith. That will bring us together more than anything. This prayer from Jesus reveals his heart for us today, the church. He loves the church. He loves us. His heart for us is to be powerful and effective and unified to him and each other. You know, Jesus, he has high hopes and dreams for us. He also has concerns for us. In verse 15, Jesus asks his father for him to keep us safe from the evil one. And actually, if you go back and read the whole chapter again, you'll see a few times where he, he has these prayers of protection. He prays these prayers of protection over us. Those prayers, I believe, still are valid to this day. I think it's primarily so that we stay on course together to not succumb to the, the devil's desire to be focused on self instead of Jesus and each other. So today, I'm going to pray for an even greater unity in this church that I believe is already does that really well. I'm going to pray against the devil who wants to do the opposite. I actually think we have the devil's attention <laughs> because we're seeing people come to faith through the church. And we're seeing people be discipled and grow up in their faith. 
I think we have his attention. So I'm going to pray against the devil just like Jesus did today. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask all the elders and the pastors and the prayer team to do something different. And I didn't pre-warn you. And uh, that's okay, hey. I'm going to ask you in a minute to find a space around the outside of this congregation, the backs, the sides, and the front. I want you to spread out evenly. When I pray, we're all going to be standing together. When I pray, I want you to raise your hands like a ring of prayer around the church family. Here's what I know. The heart of Jesus is for our unity to him and each other. Like I said, this is the last thing that he prayed before he went to the cross. He must really want this for us. He must really want us to be united together in love and purpose. He wants it. What does the Bible say about praying into Jesus' will? If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So if I pray for unity to God and to each other like Jesus did, he will answer. Do you agree? All right. For a church that's committed to perfect unity, to Jesus and each other, we can achieve great things for the kingdom. So we're going to pray. Everyone, let's stand. I want to ask the elders, the prayer team, pastors. I think two of them are away at the moment. I want you to spread out. I want a couple down the front here as well. And church, when I pray, if you agree with me, agree out loud. You can say amen. Everyone, let's practice. Say amen. amen. Oh, awesome. I love that. All right. Let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. Father, we stand before you and honor you as our Lord and God. We thank you, Jesus, for praying for this gathering of believers over 2,000 years ago. We thank you that you promised to build your church and that all the powers of hell cannot stand against it. Today we pray for a new season of unity. We commit ourselves to full surrender to you and your lordship over our lives. Unite us together to your will. Unite us to your word, which is powerful and trustworthy. Unite us to your Holy Spirit's power and leading. Unite us to each other as we commit to love each other in Christian submission and to support each other in times of prosperity and times of poverty. Unite us to the common mission of the church to glorify you, to care for those in need in our community, to care for your creation, to make disciples of all people, God, you gave us authority to use the name of Jesus. And so we pray that you deliver us from evil. Amen. We declare that Satan has no power or authority in this church in the name of Jesus. Amen. Make us one like Jesus, Amen. like you and your Father are one. May we know perfect love. May we know perfect unity for your glory. In Jesus' name, all together, amen. amen. All right. Praise God. You may as well stay standing. Worship team, you'll have to move quickly because we're going we're gonna to worship the Lord. And I just want to encourage you, um, as we leave the auditorium today, there's going to be a prayer team here and they're willing to pray with you for any reason. If, you, um, if, you, if the, today's message kind of 
resonated with you a little bit and you want to speak to me about that, I'm going to be right here. I just want to remind you of that verse, that God loves you as much as he loves the Son. If you want to receive that love today and give your heart to Jesus, then you should do it. You just got to submit to him, repent of your sin and have a new life with him. If you want to do that, you come and see me at the conclusion of the service and we'll pray together. It won't be scary. It'll be awesome, I promise.